Good news. You may be seated. By the way, you're a believer. You're trusting in Christ. How do you know you're forgiven? Notice what we did when we walked through the reading of the law and the confession of sin and the assurance of pardon. We look to His Word. Here's what we do. We confess our sins and then we see if we feel forgiven and we continue to walk in guilt. No. We take His promise and we take hold of it and we do what He says and we believe He does what He says. Forgives us, cleanses us, empowers us for new obedience. If you're not trusting in Jesus this morning, if you're not resting in His salvation, you're not forgiven. But if you're trusting in Christ, believe His Word. When you confess His sin, yeah, you won't forget it. But take it to the cross. And if it keeps leaving, run it back there. Believe His Word. He's a gracious and merciful and forgiving God. Okay. Sermon hasn't even started yet. Romans chapter 4. taking off a smaller chunk of text again today since we have a lot going on and we have the Lord's Supper. Um, you know what that means when a preacher says that? Nothing. Nothing. <laughs> Doesn't mean it's going to be a short sermon. We'll see. We'll hang on. We'll try. But we're going to um, just look at another sort of portion of this book of Romans that, that tells us uh, something that the way that we inherit the promise and the way that we don't. And, and we're going to focus on that, that negative statement a little bit more this morning than the other. But let me read from, we're in the midst of the book of Romans. We're um, getting close to a third of the way through. We're studying through that book. And I just want to read from verses 13 to 16. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world. That's last sermon, so I'll point you to that. Did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. And then he kind of expands on that. For if, if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. We're still talking about Abraham and his seed here. Not only to the inherit of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Thus far God's word. Let's pray together. Lord, guide and lead us and help us to just uh, understand a little bit more love you a little more, apply a little more, walk a little better, a little better in faith, a little better in joy, a little better in purpose. I pray for those who are in the room or over the live stream or hearing over the recording who don't know you, that you would show them that, that you would convict them of sin and draw them to faith in Jesus. I pray for those of us who do know you, Father, that you would focus on your word. This is the word of the living and true God that you would give us insight and understanding of the word by your spirit such that we would be more like Christ as a result of having been here under your means of grace. 
So Lord, bless me to preach your word in the power of the Spirit. Bless us to hear your word as your word in the power of the Spirit. And do your work in each of our hearts and lives. For it is in Jesus' holy name we ask it. Amen. What if I said to you, you can get to heaven by jumping 100 feet in the air? You'd be a little silly to start training so that you can jump 100 feet high. We can't do it. And that's kind of the point. But those who can jump pretty high think they're doing pretty good. If it, Look, I jumped four feet. You only jumped three feet. Yeah, but you know what? You didn't jump 100 feet. And if that's the scale for getting to heaven, you're lost. Just like the three-footer and the two-footer and the one-footer and the one who can't get their feet off the ground anymore. Some jump higher than others, but no one even comes close to 100 feet. But see, what we do is what I alluded at there. We compare ourselves to one another, don't we? So we draw comfort sometimes. Those are the most moral among us, maybe they're the four-foot jumpers, can get kind of proud about those four feet and look down on the people that can only jump three feet or two feet or one feet. They're not looking at the standard of a hundred feet or perfection. They're looking at themselves as compared to other sinners. You hear things like, I jumped four feet. So what? At least I'm not as bad as... Or you hear this, and sometimes you hear this in funerals. If anybody was ever going to make it to heaven... It's so-and-so. Implication. They were good enough. They were good enough. I heard a mobster, our former mobster, talking uh, on a recording a couple of weeks ago and talking about all the bad things he'd done and the murders and all these things. He said, but I have turned over a new leaf and now I am trying to live differently so that hopefully I might make it to heaven and not go to hell. And I wanted to jump through the screen and sit down with that man and show him the way. See, many people spend their entire lives jumping toward heaven, trying to get there, trying to effort it, when in fact they really never even get off the ground. And we'll try to demonstrate that today. They never realize it's a futile endeavor. They think the law is a ladder they can climb to heaven instead of a mirror that reveals why we can't get there. The law shows us the righteousness and holiness of God. It shows us His perfect standard. And first and foremost, it shows us how far short we fall of that standard so that we turn and look outside of ourselves for a Savior. So today, before communion, I just want us to look at these verses, kind of a devotional look. It's a fairly short look. And focus on why 
we can't be heirs through the law. Because some, a lot of people don't understand that. Right? To a lot of people, that's why one religion is as good as another. As long as you're sincere, that's all that matters. That's a lie. It matters whether or not you keep God's commandments. And the reason I titled this sermon Not by Law is because, well, really, that's what's in the text. If the inheritance of the, of the law are to be the heirs, faith is null, promise is void, law brings wrath. Salvation must rest on grace and grace alone. So I want to break us today, and I know I can't do that. I know the Spirit has to do that in your heart. But I want to break us of all self-dependence, of all thinking that we can merit it, of all thinking that we might be good enough or our good works or outweigh our bad, or however we're jumping towards heaven. I want to break us of that so that we go get on our face and humble ourselves and look to Christ and trust in Him fully for salvation. So the main point, rest in grace, the grace of faith, that language comes out of the text. Rest in the grace of faith because it is impossible to inherit the promise by keeping the law. Rest in the grace of faith because it is impossible to inherit the promise by keeping the law. If you look back in verse 13, we've already looked at the first part. If you want to talk more about that, look at the last sermon. But it says, The promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law or keeping the law, but through the righteousness of faith. The promise. What is the promise? Well, obviously I'm going to boil things way down as I talk about that. But God's covenant promise, redemption, salvation, eternal life, everything that comes with it, being reconciled to God, ultimately uh, in the new heavens and the new earth that we, we talked about last time. God's promise of redemption in fulfillment of His plan of redemption where He is saving a people in Christ and taking them all the way home. That promise didn't come through the law and through keeping the law, but through the righteousness of of faith. Well, think about that. The righteousness of faith. What does that mean? We in and of ourselves are unrighteous, so we need to be cleansed and forgiven. But to be accepted by God, we also not we don't just need to be clean, we need to be clothed in a real and true righteousness. And what connects us to that forgiveness and that righteousness is faith. The Spirit working in us through the gospel to convict us and draw us to faith in Jesus. And through faith in Jesus, we're united to Him, hidden in Him, cleansed of all sin and clothed in His righteousness, redeemed. See, the promise, the promise of redemption, cosmic redemption, creation, all of it renewed, including ourselves, comes through the righteousness of faith. What does the scripture say? We've been looking how Paul is expanding upon Genesis 15, 6. He believed God and God counted it to him as righteous. He believed his promise. He believed the God who had promised. He believed what he said. He trusted. It has to be through the righteousness of faith. Why? He's going to tell. Now look at verse 14. 
For if, the, if it is the inheritance of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. You see, he's not mixing things together here. He's not saying do the best you can with the law and God will make up the rest. He's not saying your good works will outweigh your bad works. He's saying you can't get there by adherence to the law. It must be through faith, as we know, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because to try to get there by performance voids the promise, nullifies the faith. And he tells us why. Verse 15, look at the first part. For the law brings wrath. That's the first thing you have to understand. Would you be saved? Would you have eternal life? Would you go to heaven? Would you take God's word seriously? You are a sinner. You are born a sinner. You are born under wrath, under condemnation. I know they're cute and pretty and cuddly, and, but it doesn't take them long to manifest what's in the heart, right? Vody Balkum calls them vipers and diapers for a reason. Mine! Ah! Ooh! Ah! The law brings wrath. The promise fails if it's by the law because the law brings wrath and death, not righteousness and blessing. And the problem's not with the law. It is holy and just and good and even spiritual. The problem's with us. In the fallen nature we inherit from our father, Adam, the guilt and corruption and therefore condemnation. And anybody who thinks they're keeping God's law, what, what it really means to keep God's law, have either severely watered down that law or they just don't understand. Because it's not the adherents to the law who inherit the promise. If through our effort, it voids the promise, it, it, it nullifies the promise. Because the law brings wrath. The promise fails if it's by the law because the law brings wrath and death, not righteousness and blessing. And why does it not bring blessing? Because we all violate it and inherit the curse, not the blessing. We come from the womb telling lies. I mean, just think of Paul's summary. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, the glorious standard of God, the law of God. That's the only way we know what sin is. Sin is lawlessness. We, come, we see the law and we see what sin is. It's violation of the law. And then he says this, and there's, there's almost as many comments on this part of the verse as there are commentaries. Where there is no law, there is no transgression. Kind of a proverbial statement, an obvious, sitting right on the face of things, right? If there wasn't any law that we were breaking, then there would be no transgression and therefore no problem. But see, guess what? There is a law because there is a creator and that he is your creator and his law is your standard whether you accept it or not. And you will keep that law in thought, word, and deed from cradle to grave or you will perish and it will be a righteous perishing. God judges sin. He must. He's holy and righteous and just and can't just sweep it under the rug. 
Where there is no law, there's no breach of the law or no penalty for breaking it. But there is a law. And we've already seen in Romans, we have the law of nature merely as being a crea creation where that law is written upon our hearts. Certainly the Jews had more detail in the Mosaic Covenant and the writing of the law. And, and as you read through all of that, now watch carefully. What you have, I've read it this morning, you have the Ten Commandments. And then in Israel, you have those Ten Commandments applied in tons of various ways. Every sin, though, comes back under one of those commandments. And that moral law was what was written on the heart at creation. It's what was violated. It's what is the standard for righteousness. It's what Jesus fulfilled, and it's what we're being transformed into. The moral law didn't go away with the, dis, with the abolishing of the Mosaic Covenant. Ceremonial law, yeah, civil law, all those kind of things. There's um, other ways to look at that. But the moral law abides. John himself, the, the apostle of love, says what really matters is keeping the commandments of love, of God. Summarized by love the Lord with your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. There is a law, so there is a penalty for breaking that law. So Paul says, law would void the promise. Why? Because what the, the message of that verse right there, where we get from 13 through 15, is that we don't keep it. We can't keep it. We need to see that so that we'll turn to Christ for salvation. So the, the first point, quickly trust in Christ alone because you can't be good enough to inherit the promise. That's simply what Paul is telling us. Second point, trust in Christ alone because only He has been good enough to give you the promise. Look quickly at, in verse 16. That is why it depends on faith. Law brings wrath. We fall short. We break God's law. We deserve condemnation. If we're to be reconciled, it can't be through keeping the law because we don't do that. We can't do that. We are sinners in bondage to sin, serving self. So we need a Savior to come save us. That is why it depends on faith. The righteousness of faith. Faith, what? Trusting in Christ, being connected to Him. That is why it depends on faith. In order that, now watch this, the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all His offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who's the father of us all. A lot of that we've already talked about, so I point you back to previous sermons. But it depends on faith. God has chosen to save a people and His condition of the covenant is faith. We repent. We turn from unbelief to faith, from running from Him to running towards Him. We receive Christ, His Son, as our Savior by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. I mean, kids, you, you, you even know the simple verse, simple summary. For God loved the world in this way. That's literally what it should say. In this manner, God loved the world. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever does good enough will not perish. That whosoever believes in Him, whosoever trusts in Him, shall not perish, but have eternal life. Christ's righteousness through faith in Him 
we are reconciled to God. Are you reconciled to God this morning? Are you still making excuses? My God would never stop. If your God is not the God of Scripture, it's an idol. It won't do you any good. It might comfort you, but it won't get you anywhere. This is the true and living God. This is the God with whom you have to deal. Those of us who know, I was going to say like it or not, those of us who know Jesus and God's grace and His mercy, we like it. Because He's gracious and merciful and kind and forgiving and receives us by the faith that He gives us. Grants what He commands. See, Christ was good enough in this life. Why did Jesus come? Because we had broken the law. We were sinners under condemnation. Christ came, born under, of a woman under his own law. And as he told John the Baptist, he fulfilled all righteousness. What does that mean? If you will be saved by your, your obedience, that means you will keep God's law in thought, word, and deed perfectly. You'll never think the wrong thing. You'll always think the right thing. You'll never say the wrong thing. You'll always say the right thing. And you'll never do the wrong thing. You'll always do the right thing out of love for God and a concern for His glory and the love for other people. See, you know you, know you hadn't done that. That's why Christ came. He did that. Isn't that amazing? Perfectly righteous life, qualifying Him to be the blemish, without blemish, spotless Lamb of God pointed to the Old Testament. He deserved blessing, but then he took our curse. Remember those sacrifices of those lambs and, and things in the Old Testament? That was a picture of someone having to pay the penalty for our sin. And that, that someone was coming, and it was the Lord Jesus Christ. He was good enough. He was proved to be the Son of God by his life. He was the spotless, without blemish Lamb of God. He kept the law uh, without breaking it in thought, word, or deed out of love for the Father. He did it for the glory of the Father. He did it for the good of His people. A perfect righteousness. And see, He was also good enough in His death. There, but he qualified. He's the spotless Lamb of God. Dying for the sins of His people. The soul that sins shall die. Right? The condemnation due us, He took. And listen, He took it all. If he took any of it, he took all of it. He didn't take 99% of it for you and you got to suffer for the rest. He took all of it. There's no purgatory you have to go to to finish paying for sins. Right? He told the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Christ paid the full penalty for the sins of his people and then he rose the third day. So he's good enough in his gift. Through faith we connect to him and are gifted that righteousness and that cleansing or forgiveness so that we are made the children of God. And it rests all on God's grace. To the praise of his glorious grace, Ephesians says. See, if we will have redemption if we will have salvation, if we will be reconciled to God, it will be through trusting in Christ and Christ alone. And when we trust in Him, it's just evidence that He's at work in us. Sometimes we worry about our doubts. Or we worry about the fact that we don't have a perfect faith. 
Look around. I don't care how we act. None of us do. None of us are glorified yet. But if pushed to the wall, in what are you trusting for eternal life? If we know him, we will say Christ in Christ alone. Not of me, but of him. Trusting in him alone. But as I end today, my application today is for us to go back to verse 14 and just ask a couple of questions. Why does the law bring wrath? Why can't we inherit the promise by the law? Why must it be by grace through faith? Simple answer. To inherit through law, you must keep all of it from the heart perfectly. So as we close... Again, what does it mean when a preacher says that? We're going to try to do this quickly. We're going to look at each of the Ten Commandments. We're going to look at God's law. We're going to think a little bit about God's law. If you don't know Jesus this morning, just look at this and let it show you why you need Him. If you know Jesus, look at it and let it show you what He's done for you and how much you're forgiven and the righteousness you're clothed in and what you're being transformed into. But as we look at these commandments, just remember, just a couple of... I, we, this could take a long time. It won't, I promise. <laughs> Whenever a sin is condemned, all like sins are condemned. And the opposite duty is commanded. You see the depth of the law there? This is how the rest of the Bible interprets it. So in the Ten Commandments, you have genus, the genus of the species of sin. So all sins flow back up under one of these commandments, and in some sense, all of them. And we'll hope to just demonstrate that a little. This is, listen, if, if you've never studied the Ten Commandments, I would encourage you to go do that. You will be astonished by the depth of each one of them. Because I can only give you a little introductory head of each one of them today and I've tried to pick what might be most beneficial through all of them. But let's look at God's Ten Commandments. Let's see why we can't inherit the promise through our works or our obedience to God's law and why it has to be by grace and faith rested in Christ. But you heard them as I read them, so one of the reasons we did that is because I knew I was coming here and I didn't want it to take forever. First one. You shall have no other gods before me. In other words, he's the only true and living God. There's not another one. And you're to treat him as such. You're to love him as the only true and living God. The creator and sustainer of all that is. The judge and the sovereign Lord of all that is. See, we're to worship him alone. He should be our ultimate trust and allegiance. See, we break this first commandment every time we seek our ultimate purpose and satisfaction in ourselves or in this world or anywhere else other than God. You probably know what John Piper says about being satisfied in God, one of his little summary statements. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied. In him. So when I look outside of him for satisfaction, hope, purpose, joy, 
when I devote myself to and serve other than Him, I'm breaking this commandment. So I can remember when a car was my God. And where our hearts are idol factories, they're all over the place. But especially as an unbeliever, I can remember I took a picture of this car and I put it on the wall and I looked at it every day and I just knew I would be happy when I got that car. That was an idol. And you know what? If I'd ever gotten that car, I wouldn't have been happy. But I never got it. And that was good for me. That's just one example. Listen, when, when, to treat him as the only true and living God, what is the summaries of, of, the, of, of the law? We've got the first four commandments, which are love of God. Second six, love of neighbor, right? This is the beginning of the first four. We are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so when we fail to do that, we're breaking this commandment. If you're being honest, you know you have looked elsewhere for satisfaction, purpose, joy. You know you have been devoted. And listen, you know you have not loved God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And there's so much more we could say. You know you've worshipped other things. We fall short. We've broken the first commandment. See, we don't even get out of first, first base before we realize we're disqualified to earn our way by our performance. Sinners who fall short. But let's keep looking at them. Second one. You shall not make carved images or bow down to serve them. It forbids us making our own gods or idols and worshiping them or serving them and being devoted to them more than we're devoted to God or, or instead of God, right? It also forbids the worshiping of the true God in the wrong way, through images or man's inventions, man's cleverness, right? We're to worship God His way according to His word. That's worship in spirit and truth. You remember <clears throat> when the children of Israel... And Moses has gone up on the mountain a long time and they almost assault Aaron and he gives in to make this golden calf that they would dance around and that's all I'll say about that. You know what they call that golden calf, right? Yahweh, the Lord. Were they worshiping the Lord? No. They were worshiping themselves primarily. Making our own gods, worshiping Him, not worshiping God. I mean, how many days have we been guilty of that? Not worshiping His way. We break the commandment. We fall short. Look at the third one. You sh this is a really deep commandment, and I'm just touching on a few things. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. This would what is the first thing we think about? We think about a curse word, right? Which is true. That would be falling short of this command. Using his name as a curse word. I had a customer one time. I was sitting in his office. Uh, he was a buyer for a large company, and, and we sold a few things to them. And I'm sitting in his, in his office. And in a flippant way, he was mad about something, and he said, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And just that day, I don't even know, I wasn't even thinking about it. I was quick enough. As soon as Christ came out of his mouth, I said, is Lord. And he was like, what? And then he was like, oh, yeah. I'm sorry. I said, well, don't apologize to me. I'm not the one you're responsible to. I'm taking a chance, right? He booted me out of his office. But he, he, he claimed to be a brother. That's another aspect of it. And so I, I kind of felt free to do that with him. And I think it made a difference. But just flippantly saying Jesus Christ. Why don't people just get mad and say, Oh, Buddha. Oh, Muhammad. Well, you see, there's a spiritual thing at work there. And you know the, I'm not going to give you the curse words. But using his name flippantly. Kids, texting. OMG. What does that stand for? You don't have to say it. That's using his name flippantly. See, we don't have a, 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 we don't have a proper reverence for the name of God, which reveals our God and who he is. And we're not careful with it. We don't have to like the Jews who wouldn't even write it or say it. Obviously, we don't have to do that. But there should be a reverence of God's name. And when we do things like that, that's not reverencing His name. Here's another way to break this command. We claim to be His people, but we live like we're not. So we're taking His name upon us, but we're living like Satan's name is on us. Our lives don't have enough evidence in them to convict us of being a Christian. But we see, we, there are a lot of people make false professions. See, this commandment would, failing to honor his name in thought, word, and deed, we fall short, and you all know that we do. How about the next one? Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. One day in seven, listen, nothing has changed about this with Christ coming. The fact that there's one day in seven that is primarily devoted to his worship. The Lord's day. It's the, it's the first day of the week since Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. The Old Testament Testament, seventh day, Sabbath, fulfilled, right? First day of the week, Lord's Day. There's a lot of wisdom. Work six, notice God's not a big fan of two-day weekends. And if you work five days a week and you own a home, you know there's another day's work at least to do that week. I don't want to say this, but people sometimes in these days with gray hairs are sitting around playing video games instead of doing what they need to be doing. So it's just as much fulfilling our work requirements as resting. Six days you shall work, but the seventh is a day of rest and worship. And if we know him rightly and if we know about the day rightly, we are, it'll be a joy and an honor. God gives us a day off every week to worship and serve him. And if you're a doctor or a nurse or somebody who has to work on Sunday, you better not, not find another day to take that rest and recuperation and, and spiritual rest that you need. But the Lord's Day, God's worship is primary. Listen, model that for your kids and teach them this. The culture is not doing this anymore. It used to be easier when the gospel was more influential in the culture and businesses were closed on Sunday and all of that, it was easier. But nothing has changed. It's just you can see the lack the swaining of influence in the culture. So the culture wants to go seven days a week, and especially on Sunday. That's really the day when we want to go to the beach or play golf or do 
all of these things. You, you know you can't worship God playing golf. If you play golf. Because that's one of the most frustrating things you can do in this life. <laughs> you throw clubs in the water and break them around trees. And God's worship is primary on the Lord's Day. And maybe we need to, as the church start putting some things out there to help our people keep the Lord's Day. I know sports leagues want to play on the Lord's Day now. Okay, maybe we can start one that doesn't. And maybe some of the best players will start playing on that league and then the coaches will get the idea, hey, maybe we need to go back to not playing games on the Lord's Day so that people can worship. Model it for your kids. God is most important. His day is most important. His worship is most important on His day. It will require sacrifice. But don't, don't model and don't teach your kids that it's not important. See, discussions continue about what one can and cannot do on the, on the Christian Sabbath or the Lord's Day. And those discussions are important. But what is vital is that we are setting apart the Lord's Day as holy by gathering for His worship with His people, resting from our ordinary vocations. So are we sanctifying one day a week for Him? I think we can see we fall short. All right, kids, look at this. And this is not just for kids, but Paul applies it to children in the New Testament. Honor your father and mother. Honor your father and mother. What does that mean? What, what does it mean to honor someone? Well, obviously to love them, to trust them, to obey them, to serve them. Hey, babe, how about this one? Kids, pray for your parents. Pray for them. Pray for God to protect them and guide them and lead them. Pray for yourself to be able to submit to them and not make life frustrating for them. Kids, God commands you to honor your father and mother. What are you doing with that? Well, I'm just going to do what I want to do, and if they don't like it, fine. Right? Hmm. Love them, trust them, obey them, serve them. Go be above and beyond what is your duty. Try to make them and their life easier and not harder because you're on the planet. So love and honor God first. And under God, honor your father and mother. And parents, listen. Teach your children. Teach them. And don't let, listen to me. Do not let your kids be disrespectful to you. You're teaching them how to interact with authority. And as they disrespect you growing up, they'll go out to disrespect others. And one of the reasons we have such problem in this country with the youth of this country is, and it's not all their thought, they haven't been parented. And some of that's because parents are not in the home and some of that's to do with the great society and I'm going to go all of that. Don't let your kids disrespect you. Don't let them talk back to you. I know it'll be harder. But teach them to trust God and love God and honor Him and serve Him and teach them to, to honor you. Teach them to glorify God. Don't make them little Pharisees. Make it, take it all the way to Christ. Raise Christians who glorify God by honoring their parents and all other rightful authorities. Remember, these commands are genus and they're species. Interaction with authority is part of this command structure. 
So if they, if they grow up honoring you, and one of, the, one, of the, one of the qualifications you'll see men ordained, doesn't mean they're perfect, but they're keeping them, their children in submission to honor God. I've heard of a thing, uh, I don't even know all there is to know. I heard some people using the term free-range parents. That's not parenting. Just let them do, let them, oh, they just expressing themselves. That's what grandparents say. And they can get away with that. But your job is to raise kids who honor God and honor you and hopefully trust Christ. Kids, honor your father and mother. And if you're not honoring your father and mother presently, either now or when this service is over, go and confess that to them and ask for their forgiveness. And look to Christ, be forgiven, accept Christ as your Savior, seek to, to walk in that. i got to move on. Number six, you shall not murder. And we know Jesus explains this commandment applies all the way down in our hearts. When they're unjustly angry with our brother and sister, we're murdering them in our hearts. It's not just our actions, it's our heart attitude. Ungodly anger breaks this commandment. Hatred, envy, desire for revenge breaks this commandment. Provoking words, quarreling, whatever would be detrimental to the lives of others is a violation of this command. And obviously this command forbids the sinful taking of a life. Now the command is do not murder. So this is not against just war. This is not against what happens on the battlefield and, and things like that. But murder of another, taking the life of another human being. And everything that flows towards that. So if we're not to kill them, remember it's the opposite duty is commanded. We're to help them thrive. We're to do all we can to preserve and defend the lives of others. Seventh, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not commit adultery. First of all, this commands purity in body and mind and desires. It requires modesty in apparel. You should be concerned about how, whether or not how you dress is going to incite lust in your neighbor. Right? Now, we're not asking anybody to go around in burqas. So it's, but appropriate modesty in love for God and for others. Shunning all occasions of uncleanness and temptation. You hear some silly talk about what Jesus never talked about these days. Jesus never said anything about gay marriage. Yes, he did. He spoke against sexual immorality, which adultery is the head of and encompasses all forms. You think because Jesus didn't say anything about looking at porn on a phone, he didn't, he didn't say anything? That's stupid. That's sexual immorality. Listen, I'll just be frank. If you're looking at pornography, you're sinning. I don't care what kind it is. I don't care how you use it in your relationship. And I don't care if your wife says it's okay and y'all do it together. It's sin. It's adultery. It's a problem. Sexual immorality represented by adultery is any sex, thought, word, and deed outside of the marriage. Listen to me. I'm going to say this loud so people that want to have my head one day can hear it. Outside of the marriage of one man and one woman Amen. devoted together. All other sexual expression is sin. All other sexual desire is sin. 
Jesus taught that if you look on another person with lust, you break this commandment. That ought to deal with pornography right there. Listen, I get it. If you feel like you're in bondage to that and you need help with that, but God, if you're a Christian, you will be pouring yourself out to be free of that. You'll be telling other people of your problem. No one will condemn you. You will come for help. And we will help you. Me too, buddy. He smells that food back there. He said, I'm hungry. Any sex in thought, word, and deed outside of marriage is sin, and it is a breaking of this commandment. And any fantasizing about that, any looking at that, The only moral biblical outlet for sexual expression is marriage between a man and a woman. Started in Genesis 2. There's a lot of perversion of that. There's a lot of people who want to define themselves by their feelings, which is an illusion. I could go so far on this commandment, and I'm not going to. If you're flirting with other than your spouse, you are breaking this commandment. Be careful. Guys, gals, in the workplace, when you start sharing intimacy, things of your heart with a person of the opposite sex, things are starting to happen. And people say things, well, I just don't know how it happened. I didn't mean to. You look back, there's a pretty clear trail of how that happened. God commands us to repent, and he empowers us to repent. And if we won't repent, we'll answer to him for it someday. Sexual immorality, sex outside of marriage, pornography, it's all out of bounds. It's all a violation. And listen, positively, this command, listen to me, husbands especially, but wives as well. This commands us to do everything possible to nurture and protect our marriages. Do not take your spouse for granted. Do not. You treat them the way Christ treats you, not the way they deserve to be treated. Don't, don't, don't say, if they would, I would. Jesus didn't do that, right? He came to die for his enemies. Die for that spouse. Die for that relationship. Die for your kids. Die to self. Pour in. Do everything possible to, in a godly way, nurture and protect your marriage. I got to move on. Number eight, you shall not steal from God or man. From God. Go read Malachi 3. Right? People were robbing God. They were not giving to God. They were not giving God His time. One recent study found that 12% of self-identified born-again Christians in evangelical and in non-evangelical denominations tithe on a regular basis. And maybe you say tithing is not the New Testament form of giving. So, the glorious fulfillment of redemption you have in the, in the New Testament means you should give less than... Come on. Really? God said, I didn't say it, they were robbing him to bring the tithes into the storehouse and see what he would do. So we can steal from God. We can steal from others goods, time, Reputation. Now, 
Even taking a piece of paper that's not yours is a violation if you didn't ask. And the opposite of this, what, what does Paul say? No longer steal, but work with your hands that you might have something to give. So the positive application would be given helping others who are in need. You see that in, in, in Acts, right? What the church did with their possessions. And, you know, it doesn't mean they gave everything, but the, they had lands and houses they had, and they sold them and they laid the money at the apostles' feet so that the church's needs could be met. So giving to God, giving to others, not taking from others, not holding what, what, what you can clearly see that either would fulfill God's commands to give to Him or to others. Listen to me. Stinginess is just dressed up greed. Now, good stewardship is we take stinginess and call it good stewardship, and then we don't do what God commands us to do. Careful. Not steal, but be a giver, both to God and others. Got to move on. You shall not bear false witness. What I'll say about this is we're to be truth tellers. Even if it costs us, we're to be truth tellers. Lying is forbidden and serious. Speak the truth in court and in life in general. Have you ever told a lie? You fall short of the command. When we've done something and broken a command, you know, if he says you shall not lie and you lie, that makes you a, oh, come on. Huh? Yes. Even the kids will say it. Others, some others will. And we need, to, we need to run to him and be forgiven for that. None of us has told the truth from cradle to grave. Now, this one may hurt a little more. Which means we're to avoid all gossip and slander. We're to honor God and others with our tongues. And yes, you can gossip through a prayer request. So be careful that you're talking about things about people that you haven't the permission to talk about. We are to be truth speakers and speak the truth in love, not in harshness. And last, you shall not covet. And Paul highlights this one in Romans 7. We'll get there. Look at this. What is the aim of the Tenth Commandment? This is the Heidelberg uh, Catechism question 113. I don't think I gave them a slide for this. Listen to me. What is the aim of the Tenth Commandment? Answer. Now watch. That not even the slightest desire or thought contrary to any one of God's commandments should arise in our hearts. Rather, with all our hearts, we should always hate sin and take pleasure in whatever is right. So if we wouldn't covet, that means we're going to be grateful and satisfied with what God has provided. Doesn't mean we don't work for more and submit it to Him in His will. But right now, today, you have everything you need to be grateful and satisfied with what God has provided. Are you grateful and satisfied with what God has provided? Are you content? Discontentment is a sign of covetousness. Covetousness is an excessive desire to have more and more and more. Never, remember studying Ecclesiastes, never tie your satisfaction to the things in this world. They have to be looked tied above the sun in our God. Never lust after what your neighbor has thinking it will satisfy you. Envy, greed, 
reveals itself in a discontented heart. And who of us have never done that? Have always thought and pursued the right thing? There's forgiveness for breaking every one of these sins. But see, you can see why Paul would say it's not the inheritance of the law that will, the, the adherence to the law that will be the heirs. For the law brings wrath because we've all broken the law. That's why we need a Savior. Isaiah sums up our situation in Isaiah 64, 6. We often quote part of this verse. I'll read the whole thing for you. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. We can't inherit through the law because we don't keep the law. We don't even start really trying to keep the law until we're converted, till we're forgiven and we have a new heart and the Spirit dwelling within us so that we understand the Word and we begin to walk in an effort to love God by keeping His commandments. But we'll need mercy every day because we'll never keep them in thought, word, and deed even till we're glorified. God is gracious and merciful in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, if we have faith in Him. But all of our righteous attempts outside of Christ, it says, are polluted garments. Romans 3.12, we've seen this, we've already been there. But it helps us to understand why none does good, not even one. To do good, you'd not only have to keep all of those commandments in thought, word, and deed, you would have to do it out of love for God and a concern for His utmost glory in the power of the Spirit according to the Word of God. If we will inherit the promise, it must be by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Paul tells us Christ died for our sins. Outside of Him, that's all we have. He died for our sins. He was buried and raised the third day in Romans 5, for our justification. And He gifts the promise to us through faith and repentance. Have you turned to Christ and received Him as your only hope, as your only Savior? Are you trusting in Christ and Christ alone? If so, you inherit the promise as the seed of Abraham. But if we inherit it, it must be by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's the only way it can be guaranteed to all his offspring. Are you still jumping towards heaven? Or have you submitted to God's law and his verdict? You are a sinner lost and helpless and can't save yourself. If so, look to Christ. Or maybe you have stopped jumping and you have trusted in Christ. I warn you, watch out every day for the legalist inside you that wants to pop up and call you back to a jumping contest. Daily look to Christ. Rest fully in His grace. For His promise rests on grace and is guaranteed to all who rest in Christ. To live is Christ. Let's pray. Lord, help us. I pray for those who don't know you, who are flippant about you and maybe even flippant about your word, who could care less what you think and just out to do their own thing, that you would convict them of sin and help them to see that you are the God they will stand before and this law will be the standard. 
pray that they would abandon all hope in self and quickly run to Christ, look to Christ, trust in Christ. For those of us who know you, Lord, may your grace fuel a life of devotion. Grant us repentance and faith and on a daily basis. Grant us what we need that our souls might be rested in you, that we might experience the joy that you have for us, delighting in your purpose, living for you out of love, being light and salt for you. Have mercy. Make disciples, Lord. I pray for our children. Save every one of our children and our teenagers. I know that they know it all, but they still need a Savior. I mean, I, I say that. We, we have great teenagers. When I was a teenager, I thought I knew it all, so maybe I won't throw them in my category. But Lord, save the kids, save the teenagers, save the youth, save the adults, save the married and unmarried, save everyone who doesn't know you. And sanctify those of us who do. That we can rest in the Lord Jesus Christ. And know that the promise rests in grace. And that the faith, even the faith that we have, is a gift from you. So we can calm our hearts. Receive your forgiveness and walk in your strength by your spirit. All of grace. Help us to not only believe it, but to live in that reality. So save and sanctify your people. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.